For those of us familiar with the case of the murders at White House Farm, there tends to be a detailed understanding of the key evidence on which Jeremy Bamber was convicted, because so much of it has already been debated in the public domain. Some will even argue that there's an abundance of evidence against Jeremy Bamber, especially when circumstantial is combined with the forensic and physical. And yet, compared with 2023 standards, there really are only a handful of important pieces of evidence that suggest Bamba's guilt. There is no blood evidence to place Bamba at the scene, no video or photographic footage, no witness statements, and there's very little in the way of fingerprints. For both suspects, there is evidence and a lack of it. Nothing conclusive that points to one or the other. But what there is, is a lack of evidence where there should be. What's left is two potential outcomes, both based on the likelihood of it being one or the other. It's worth saying that this case is very much of its time, and that if it had happened now, in 2023, there's a high likelihood that things would have been significantly different. For one thing, the scene would have been treated with far more consideration, and likely the same mistakes wouldn't happen twice. Secondly, the nature of forensic evidence has also shifted, meaning that the amount and quality of evidence would likely be a lot better. And fortunately, hindsight is twenty twenty, and we can never get back the time that we lost, nor the evidence, and so for that reason, this podcast will start with the accepted case against Jeremy Bamber. Because despite protestations and suggestions of new evidence, much of what we're left with is what we knew back then. It's for that reason that we are still able to coherently argue the same arguments that the original trial prosecution made, despite there being little to no surviving public transcript of that original trial. Yet remove the muddied water that has been created over the years and the lack of written record hardly matters. So simple is the actual case against Jeremy Bamber. Underneath the surface, there are other small points of discussion that often tend to be overlooked by the mainstream media in any reporting of this case. Yet for me personally, some of those are the most interesting. So while this episode is aimed at those new to the case, those who believe they are familiar with it might do well to listen to because perhaps there might be some aspects that you've not yet heard of. As it's one of the very few records that is publicly available, one source that was pivotal to the consideration of this case is the Court of Appeal summary from 2002. While the wider details are public and relatively well known, certain parts of this episode have been detailed and expanded on based solely on that document. What follows is an overview of the theory and version of events that the prosecution presented during Jeremy Bamber's 19-day trial in 1986, filling in some of the gaps from our last few episodes, and is ultimately what got us to where we are today, as it secured the conviction against Jeremy Bamber. The prosecution believed that, motivated by anger, hatred and greed, Jeremy Bamber had planned out the killings, rationalising that his sister was the ideal scapegoat. With contemporary society's little understanding of mental health issues, he almost got away with it. With the police far too quick to believe what they eventually deemed to be misdirection on the part of Bamba. The prosecution's theory is 
that at around 10pm, January Bamba left the farm by car, having spent the entire day there working. Upon returning home, he then placed a call to Julie Magford, the first of what would be three separate phone calls over the course of the next few hours. It's hard to imagine that someone intent on murder would somehow manage to sleep, so for obvious reasons, it's unknown what happened between the phone call and the early hours of the next morning. The obvious theory being that Bamba was awake, abiding his time and stewing in whatever he was feeling. But regardless of what happened next, the prosecution believed that during the early hours of that morning, Jeremy rode his mum's bicycle, which he'd already taken from the farm, back to the property, using the interconnected and relatively hidden farm lanes to avoid being seen. This would have only taken him around 15 minutes, a theory that was tested by a police officer and someone who I've also interviewed, who you'll hear from at a later date. Once at the farm, Bamba gate entrance through one of the ways he knew how, and headed upstairs with a rifle moderator attached. The order of the killings is entirely unknown, and mostly irrelevant to the overall timeline. The exception of which was obviously that of Sheila, but with little to no information available to estimate the time of death or the order, it's a somewhat moot point for this episode. There are, however, some conclusions that can be drawn from the crime scene based on the publicly available evidence. A quote from the Court of Appeal document reads, June was shot whilst lying in bed, but had managed to get up and walk a few steps before she collapsed and died in the main bedroom. Neville was also shot in the bedroom, but was able to get downstairs into the kitchen where there was a violent struggle before he was overwhelmed and then shot a number of times in the head. The children had been shot in their beds as they slept. Sheila, probably in a sedated state from her medication, was also shot in the bedroom. End quote. At this point, the prosecution alleged that Jeremy Bamba began to stage the crime scene, but quickly realised that the sound moderator was a problem, as the weapon was too long with it attached. With the moderator, it was impossible for Sheila to have been the one to pull the trigger. According to this version of events, Jeremy removes the moderator and returned it to the cupboard, seeking to give the impression that it had never been used at all. At this point, or perhaps just before, Bamba placed the Bible to the side of Sheila and used the bedroom phone, which was strangely in the kitchen on the morning of the murders, to call his own phone at the cottage. The prosecution believed that the bedroom phone was moved to the kitchen as it aided Jeremy in verifying what was to be his only source of an alibi, the famous call from his father. There were four phones within White House Farm, but on the night of the murders, the bedroom phone was found in the kitchen. There were four phones within White House Farm, but on the night of the murders, the bedroom phone was found in the kitchen. While Jeremy Bamba explained that this was because one of the kitchen phones was in for repair, something I assume the police verified. Originally, there would have been two phones in the kitchen, one in the bedroom and one in the office. Subtracting the one which was taken in for repair would have left one phone in each the bedroom, kitchen and office. According to Jeremy Bamber, the bedroom phone was the one his parents favoured and so they had taken the decision to move it into the kitchen in replacement of the one that had been taken, hence leaving two in the kitchen, 
one in the office and none in the bedroom. Firstly, if the bedroom phone was the favourite phone, why wasn't it in the kitchen in the first place? In my experience, bedroom phones are only really used when needed, whereas the phone in the communal area would have been used much more regularly. Hence, wouldn't your preferred phone have been there? Secondly, surely the phone was in the bedroom for convenience reasons. And so, leaving that room without any phone when there was already a second phone in the kitchen anyway seems to make little sense. After all, let's not forget that White House Farm is a fairly large property and the kitchen was a floor beneath the master bedroom. And so had the farm received a phone call in the early hours, they would have had to have gone all the way to the kitchen in the middle of the night. It seems strange that they'd have moved the bedroom phone. And so while it was of course possible that the phone was moved based on an innocent reason, there are obvious questions to be asked. Additionally, crime scene images of the bedroom clearly show a dusty outline of where the phone should have usually been, suggesting that it had only been removed fairly recently. And although this would be consistent with Jeremy Bamber's story, on the balance of probabilities, it still seems strange. Before June Bamber died, she'd moved around the bedroom and her blood was found on the carpet on the opposite side of the bed, underneath where Sheila was later found. For police, this suggested that June had gone to the other side of the bed, towards where the phone usually would have been, almost as if she'd gone to use it. If that is why the blood is on that side of the bed, and that was why she'd gone there, it seems unlikely that it was removed before the crimes. Interestingly, and again benchmark this for a later episode, the second kitchen phone was later found in the kitchen, but it appeared to have been hidden. While the campaign team dispute this, the prosecution alleged that there was eventually found under magazines by a member of the farm's staff. One phone moved and one hidden, certainly creating the impression that someone didn't want people in the house to have access to the phones. More than just this, the prosecution believed that there was a very specific reason why the bedroom phone was moved to the kitchen, and they further believe that this suggests that Jeremy Bamber was the one who moved it. Of the four phones at White House Farm, the bedroom phone was the only one that had specific memory recall function. It didn't record a time. This was 1985, before that technology had been fully rolled out. But it did recall the last number that was used. Think of the redial feature on most contemporary phones. The prosecution believed that there was a call made to Jeremy Bamber's cottage from White House Farm during the early hours, but that Jeremy didn't answer it, and nor did Neville make the call, because Jeremy was the one placing the call to his own phone. When Jeremy then provided his alibi, if the police wanted to check, they could have recalled the last number which would have been Jeremy's, hence adding some weight to what was intended to be his alibi. Having committed the crimes, staged the scene and placed the phone call, The prosecution alleged that Jeremy then left the property via the kitchen window, banging it closed after him to give the impression that the farm was entirely locked from the inside. He then cycled his way home, just in the same way as he had originally got to the property. At this point, the prosecution believes he called Julie. At this point, the prosecution believes that he called Julie, wanting there to be a delay between him arriving home and the police being alerted. Although Jeremy's version of events changed during interviews with him at times saying this call came before the other, it's unclear in what order they were made. But according to the prosecution's theory, 
He called Julie first. And now we're back to the known timeline. At 3.36am, a call was logged from Jeremy Bamber, but the court heard evidence to suggest that it was at 3.26am. The reason for the mistake, there had been a simple error in the recording of the call's time. Again, you are going to want to benchmark this for the future episode where we discuss the two-call theory. Instead of calling 999, Jeremy called Chelmsford Police Station via their direct number and his call was answered by PC West. You've heard numerous versions of this call by this point, but for consistency's sake, let's use the wording referenced in the Court of Appeal document. According to the police operator, Jeremy Bamber advised him that he'd received a phone call from his father and that his father had said the following, quote, You've got to help me. My father rang me and said, please come over. Your sister has gone crazy and has the gun. The line went dead, end quote. He also outlined that he'd tried to call his father back, but that the line was engaged. While Jeremy Bamber was still on the phone, the operator placed him on hold. He also outlined that he'd tried to call his father back, but that the line was engaged. While Jeremy Bamber was still on the phone, the operator placed him on hold and relayed this information to the police information room. On the other end of the line, a civilian member of staff named Michael Bonnet opened an incident log and took his own notes. However, on Bonnet's log, the time was recorded as 3.26am, the correct time according to the prosecution. When PC West returned to the line, Bamba was said to have commented on the time the West had taken something that was later contradicted by West when he himself said that the call was only a few moments long. The prosecution highlighted two specific concerns with the suggestion that Bamba was calling the police following an emergency call from his father. The first being that Jeremy was calm and collected, a contrast to someone who had received the news that his family's lives were in danger. The second being that considering the seriousness of the situation, serious enough for Bamba to believe he needed to call police in the first place, it was odd that he hadn't called the emergency number. At this point, a police car was dispatched and Jeremy was asked to meet the police there. While driving to the scene, police overtook what they described as a slow-moving vehicle, the car that we now know Jeremy Bamba was driving. According to the testimony given by Anne Eaton, Jeremy's cousin, it was unusual for his car to have been travelling at such a slow speed, as Jeremy Bamba was known to have been a fast driver. For some, this again suggests that Bamba was trying to distance himself from the crime scene, meaning that he would not be the first one on the scene and hence furthering the alibi that he was attempting to create. At the scene, Police were struck by how quiet everything was and feared that there must have been an ongoing hostage situation. But as we know, that wasn't the case and police entered to discover the awful crime scene. In terms of evidence, this case is very light on hardcore forensics. But it's important to remember, it was a while before DNA held the kind of value that it does now. The pivotal Colin Pitchfork case was on the horizon, but it hadn't happened yet. And so, while the case against Jeremy Bamber is compelling, it's not as concrete as perhaps it would be under the same circumstances now. But that's not to say that there weren't any forensics or any evidence to suggest Bamber's guilt, as even circumstantial evidence had an important part to play. And in that regard, 
there was plenty of evidence to consider. By my estimations and understanding of the case, there are five essential pieces of evidence that need to be dissected in any consideration of how Bamba was convicted. For the prosecution, it was these five key elements that they believe illustrated their outlined version of events. This is only a brief overview, and all of these aspects will be touched upon in a later episode, including the contradictory evidence the defence and campaign are now able to present. The first key aspect of the prosecution's case is that of the sound moderator, probably one of the most important and renowned parts of the White House farm case. The prosecution believed that the sound moderator was attached to the weapon and it being attached meant that Sheila could only have been a victim. So, what is it that leads the prosecution to believe that the moderator was attached to the weapon? And why did the defence dispute this? Forensic evidence detected the presence of blood within the moderator, back splatter, consistent only with the moderator having been on the rifle when the rifle was fired at a close range. The weapon was used for pest control, and so it's easy to rule out any form of hunting as being the source of said blood. Most pests are not shot at such a close distance. It's very unlikely that anyone would get close enough to a rabbit to create a close contact wound that would result in back splatter. And so, we're fairly confident that this is human blood. But scientists were unable to say conclusively whose blood it was. They were able to narrow it down somewhat, offering the informed opinion that whilst it was most likely to have been Sheila's, it could have also been a mixture of the blood of June and Neville Bamber. Although this was the lesser likely of the two, it was also a possibility. It's worth pointing out here that the defence now knows that Jeremy's uncle, Robert Boutflower, also had the same type of blood as Sheila, and that there was a possibility that this blood somehow ended up in the moderator at some point after the murders. But at the time of the trial, the prosecution believed it had to have been Sheila's blood. Yet regardless of which of the two possibilities it was, whether it was a combination of June and Neville or Sheila's blood, both versions suggest that the rifle had the moderator on it during the crime. Secondly, after the murders, a series of scratches were found on the surface of the red agar in the kitchen, a similar colour to the red paint flakes which were also found on the moderator. These were found to have been a match, suggesting that the moderator had caused the damage to the agar. Bearing in mind the struggle in the kitchen, the prosecution believed that this was further evidence of the moderator having been on the weapon during the crime. The defence, however, dispute this. Firstly, the defence have since asked a photography expert to consider the crime scene images of the agar, and it was his expert opinion that the scratches were not present in the original crime scene photographs, suggesting that had they been made with the sound moderator, it had happened sometime after suspicion had already shifted to Jeremy. The second is that Neville Bamber was found with three strange burn marks on the back of his neck. And whilst the origin of these has never been determined, some believe that they are more in keeping with the hot end of the rifle having been the cause, and not the hot end of the moderator. Yet despite this, the prosecution was convinced of the moderator's importance, and hence it was an essential part of the prosecution's case. Interestingly, and as an aside, the burns on Neville's neck are now said to be part of the latest submission to the CCRC, but we know little more about that. 
The moderator was said to have been so important to the case that even the judge suggested it was one of the most important aspects of his case in the summing up. Quote, On the evidence of the silencer alone, you may find Mr. Bamba guilty. End quote. The sound moderator and its attached forensic evidence is still contested to this day and is one of the many aspects of the CCRC submission. The second component of the prosecution's case was that of Sheila's body and the suggestion that she didn't appear to have gone on a rampage. Her hands were found to have had low levels of lead, suggesting that she had not handled the number of bullets alleged. A finding that was compared to a forensic scientist who had handled the same bullets herself. For the prosecution, this was inconsistent with Sheila having reloaded the weapon on three separate occasions. Then there was her nightdress, which appeared clean, inconsistent with someone who'd beaten an already bleeding man. Her hands had little to no blood on them and her feet were entirely without debris and much has since been made of her nail polish, which appeared to be relatively intact. Again, a direct contrast to one of the forensic scientists who damaged their own nails in the process of reloading the weapon. For the defence at the time, there was an adequate explanation for this, a little-known phenomenon known as ritual cleaning a process by which someone commits a crime and cleans themselves before ending their life. I have to be honest here, I have struggled to find anything more about this theory and my interviews with experts have caused me to doubt the validity of it. There is little to nothing written about this alleged reoccurrence and I found hardly any examples of other cases where this phenomenon was said to be present. Thirdly, the prosecution believed that Sheila was incapable of using a gun, with Jeremy really being the only person to allege differently. While other witnesses admitted loosely to having seen her on hands, or having perhaps handled a gun once or twice, very few believed she was capable of this kind of crime. Making one shot in the moment on a family hunt is not the same as reloading a weapon three times in a pressured situation, and firing 25 near-perfect shots in quick succession while on heavy medication and drowning in adrenaline. For the gun experts that I've spoken to, it's nigh on impossible to imagine that this was actually the case. Only someone with experience would load a gun that many times without any issue. And so, that was one of the biggest aspects of the prosecution's case. While not evidence in itself, it certainly has a part to play in the case against Jeremy Bamba. And so number four is the fact that Jeremy Bamba had a motive. It was well established at the trial that there had been tensions within the Bamba home and that Jeremy was the kind of person who aspired to a wealthy and independent life. While his parents paid him well and gave him everything a young person could truly want, it's clear that the farm life wasn't the one Jeremy aspired to. The motive was an essential part of the prosecution's case as Jeremy had stood to inherit a small fortune. And that leads us, ideally, onto the next piece of evidence in the Bamba case, the testimony of Julie Mugford. It was the incident that marked a turning point in the investigation. And while some continue to discredit all that she had to say, it was her testimony that drew together everything the police had started to suspect. By the time she made the allegations, she'd already separated from Jeremy. And so, for the defence and the campaign, this greatly undermines her credibility. Yet, regardless of what her motives may have been, her evidence was seen as vital to the prosecution's case, as it helped draw together everything that they were then alleging. 
In a snapshot, here are some of the allegations that she made. That Jeremy Bamba called her on the evening before the murders at around 9.50pm, telling her that he was angry about something. During this call, he told her that he'd been unable to stop thinking about the crime that he would commit and that it's all he thought about as he sat on the tractor that day. That she'd received a second phone call from him during the early hours and that during that call, he'd told her that, quote, Everything was going well. Something is wrong at the farm, end quote. But not taking him seriously, she'd advised him to go back to bed. Later that morning, Julie received a third call, this time from a phone box to which the police had taken Jeremy. He told her what was happening and that the police would be picking her up. When she arrived at the cottage, Jeremy was said to have told her that he should have been an actor. That evening, when the couple were alone, Julie asked Jeremy if he'd committed the crime, but he told her that he hadn't. Instead, he alleged that he'd paid a friend of his £2,000 to commit the crime. He then outlined some of the details from the crime scene, that having gotten in and out of the farm via the ways that Jeremy had advised, he killed the family before placing a call to Jeremy's cottage from the kitchen phone. But there had been a slight issue with Neville, who was stronger than he looked. Jeremy stated that Sheila had been forced to lie down and that was when the last shot was made with a Bible being placed on her chest to give the appearance of some religious mania. With the evidence now discussed, let's finish by considering the presumptions on which Jeremy Bamber's conviction is ultimately based and the presumptions that the prosecution made in formulating their case. Over the next few weeks and months, we'll come back to these issues time and time again because as the basis for the case itself, they are what we will seek to tear apart. This podcast has always been about looking for answers, and so it's worth bearing these in mind as we move forward. And so, the presumptions are as follows. That of the five family members who were found dead, at least four of them had been murdered, and in reality, there were only two plausible versions of events. Either Jeremy Bamber had murdered the family, or Sheila Caffell had. That there had actually been no phone call from Neville Bamba, and that on the contrary, it had been a ruse to create an alibi and to prevent himself from being the only one who found the bodies. If the phone call never happened, then the only way for Jeremy Bamba to have known about the murders was for him to have been the one that orchestrated them. The presumption that the call never happened was based on a handful of circumstantial evidence. The first being that if Neville had been hurt upstairs, as the prosecution believed he had, the injury to his larynx was likely to have been inflicted on the upper floors, and hence he would not have been able to use the phone. Secondly, that had his father's call ended as it had, Jeremy would not have been able to use his own phone as quickly as he said. This is because of the phone line situation in 1985, meaning that the phone at White House Farm and Jeremy's phone would have remained connected. Thirdly, that the telephones had suspiciously been moved, suggesting that there was some level of staging, with the phone found near Neville having usually been kept in the bedroom. Fourthly, that there was no blood on the telephone, inconsistent with an injured Neville having used it. And lastly, that it made little sense that neither Jeremy or Neville had thought to call 999. That Sheila had little to no experience of using a gun and that while some family members had seen her use it on perhaps one or two occasions, it was unlikely that Sheila could handle the gun in the way that the crime would have demanded. 
that the gun was used with the sound moderator attached. Due to the forensic evidence that was found on the weapon, namely the blood and the paint flicks, which were a match to the kitchen, that the moderator being attached to the weapon was evidence in itself to suggest that Sheila was not the person wielding the gun, as the moderator attached would have made it too long for her to pull the trigger. That the lack of blood within the gun itself, in consideration with the fact that Sheila's second wound was close contact, contrasts directly with the fact that the blood was present in the moderator. A close contact wound inevitably creates back splatter, meaning that had the close contact wound been done with the gun alone, we'd have expected to see back splatter inside the rifle. It wasn't there, and hence, it's a suggestion that the moderator was therefore attached when the fatal and final shot was fired. If the moderator was on the weapon when Sheila was shot a second time, she could not have been the one to return it to the cupboard, hence suggesting that somebody else had to have been present. Whatever I, you, or anyone else might think about the case which was presented, it was obviously strong enough, as it was this narrative which ultimately led to the conviction of Jeremy Bamber. And that brings us nicely onto the CCRC, to which Jeremy has recently submitted his appeal. At the time of recording this episode, it has been many, many months since that was submitted. But to date, there has been no update. Instead, there are regular articles about the submission being leaked to the media, with some minor information being provided about what has been submitted. But for the most, little is known about the detail. The campaign version of events has also been uploaded, but for now, let's take a second to consider what we do know about the latest submission. And, for international listeners, what exactly the CCRC is. The CCRC, or Criminal Cases Review Commission is an independent body that was established to review the cases of those who believe they have been wrongly sentenced or wrongly convicted. It's the body that considers submissions from those who have already lost an appeal. If the CCRC do find something that could be incorrect with either the case or the sentence, they are able to send the case back to the Court of Appeal. However, Before an appeal can be launched, new evidence or a new argument must be submitted to the CCRC and the case must essentially look different now to how it did at the time of conviction. In theory, it's a great organisation and has made some brilliant decisions since its creation. But there's a core issue with the organisation that has a serious impact on the work it's able to do. The CCRC is gravely underfunded. Established in 1995 by the Criminal Appeal Act, the goal of the CCRC was to create a fairer system, removing the political concerns that the previous system embodied. Prior to its foundation, it was the responsibility of the CR division of the Home Office, and this meant that the Home Secretary had the final say. It was his or her decision on whether to send a case back to the Court of Appeal. Its conception followed an inquiry by the Royal Commission on Criminal Justice in 1993, which suggested that successive Home Secretaries had been reluctant to involve themselves in referring cases, even when there was compelling evidence of innocence. It was suggested that this was due to outside political influence and an entrenched reluctance of Home Secretaries to challenge the courts. The entire inquest had been promoted by a crisis in the public trust, following the reversal of several miscarriages of justice, many of which were high-profile, including the Guildford Four, the Birmingham Six and the Maguire Seven. 
And so, to address the constitutional problem, the CCRC was created. And while government-funded, it's entirely independent. But it's far from the perfect solution. For one thing, while it is independent from government, it's not independent from the courts. This was another suggestion that came from the RCCJ report. And yet, it's not what's been done. In a consideration of the failings, the Innocence Network recorded why and how this is affecting applicants. Quote, The CCRC cannot refer applications to the appeal courts unless there is a real possibility that the conviction, verdict, finding or sentence would not be upheld were the reference to be made. The real possibility test subordinates the CCRC entirely to the appeal courts. The real possibility test subordinates the CCRC entirely to the appeal courts and restricts its review and decision-making process to the appeal courts' criteria for quashing convictions. Even though, generally speaking, applicants to the CCRC must have already failed in an appeal at the appeal court. As such, it is perhaps not surprising that the CCRC refers so few cases. End quote. One of these restrictions is the requirement that new evidence or a new argument be found that wasn't available at trial. A quote from the Innocent Network. Quote, this requirement restricts the CCRC's ability to assist the innocent if the evidence of their innocence was available at the time of the original trial or previous appeal. If evidence supporting the defence or the appellant's claim of innocence was available but was not produced at trial, either by reason of omission or tactical decision by trial counsel, such evidence will not generally constitute the kind of fresh evidence or argument required by the CCRC, end quote. And so, it is somewhat bound by the Court of Appeal. Alongside its regulatory position and the concerns that it invokes, it remains chronically underfunded and understaffed. This is something that itself has conceded, with minutes from a meeting emerging in which it called itself unfit for purpose. The CCRC set itself a target of 19 cases per case manager, as this is deemed to be the ideal and manageable amount, but it averages around 24 cases per member of staff, a figure that has been called unworkable by those within it. With too many cases, too few staff and underfunding, it's often not able to give each case the attention it deserves and it's plagued by really long delays. And while much of the news coverage of the CCRC's criticism is now between 8 and 10 years old, a recent news story relating to the post office scandal demonstrates that many of these concerns have still not been addressed. For international listeners, the post office, or the Horizon scandal, is one worth briefly mentioning. In 1999, the post office introduced its brand new computer system, a system that was designed to make work easier for the sub-postmasters and sub-postmistresses. The system had to be used to track things such as transactions, accounting and stock-taking. But pretty quickly, concerns were raised, with a number of people reporting that there appeared to be bugs within the system and that the computers were regularly reporting false shortfalls. It was the continued shortfalls in the sum of money being reported that eventually led to the conviction of 736 postmasters and sub-postmistresses, with each being accused of various crimes related to the Horizon problem. It's still baffling to me that there were 736 people all being accused of fraud and theft, 
And not once did the post office sit back and wonder if perhaps something else was going on. Or what is even more concerning is that they genuinely believed they had that many people working for them who were able to commit these crimes. And yet, if they were wondering behind the scenes if something bigger was at play, that didn't reflect in the way the matter was handled because the previous figure, 736, equated to a case a week between 2000 and 2014. No one noticed the emerging pattern. No one joined the dots and the prosecutions continued. At best, that resulted in financial ruin for many, with those convicted having to pump their own funds to fill the gap. But at worst, it even resulted in prison sentences. It wasn't until 2019 that the campaign made significant progress, with the post office finally settling with 555 sub-postmasters. But it wasn't until last year that sentences began being quashed, with even more sentences being overturned in recent months. The BBC have called this the UK's most widespread miscarriage of justice, and it's anticipated that even more will soon have their convictions overturned, something that is a deep concern for the CCRC. A recent statement from the CCRC outlined their concerns with the forthcoming appeals, with it being an increasing concern over how fit the CCRC is to deal with such an increase in the workload. It stated that should there be over 200 appeals from those affected, as is anticipated, the CCRC simply wouldn't be able to investigate each of the cases. And so, the concerns seem as relevant as ever. Regardless of how effective it is, the system is the system. And while it's now harder than ever to see a conviction overturned or an appeal granted, the CCRC is where Jeremy Bamber's case sits again. In 2011, Jeremy Bamber was refused an appeal by the CCRC, with them not finding any substance to the grounds he offered. In July 2022, Jeremy himself criticised the CCRC, claiming that they have no compassion and are full of lies. The latter of which being an accusation that is directed at numerous people linked to the case against Jeremy Bamber. He claimed that his new submission, which contained new evidence that he claims is 100% proof that he didn't murder his family. At the time of writing this episode, Jeremy Bamber had been waiting over 400 days, but it would be substantially more if I sat down and worked it out now. But he also suggested that they had no intention of doing their jobs. That's probably not the case, and far more likely is the reality that, as we've discussed, That's probably not the case, and far more likely is the reality that, as discussed, it's simply due to chronic underfunding, and I can imagine that Jeremy's submission is substantial. Regardless, Jeremy Bamber, his legal team, and his campaign team now argue that they have credible and expansive grounds for appeal. The campaign website has made it clear that there are eight specific grounds on which the submission is based, and while many of these are well known, it is said that there is additional evidence now included, much of which is not in the public domain at the present time. But they do allege that each aspect has multiple strands and grounds, and that they also allege that new forensic reports also form part of the submission. As an overview of that submission, it's worth us briefly considering what we do know about those eight grounds. For the sake of consistency and coherence, I will read these in a list of one to eight in the same order as the campaign team lists them on their website adding some further detail where is necessary. Save me repeating this every time, there will of course be future episodes on each of the specifics in the case, 
And so you can assume that there's a future episode on almost every aspect. And at that point, more information will be given. This is just an overview of the key points and what we will inevitably come back to later. And so let's start with number one, the sound moderators, plural. The campaign now argued that there were two Parker Hill sound moderators taken into evidence and that each of these was forensically examined. The campaign website outlines that there is, quote, a corpus of evidence to that effect, end quote. The campaign team now argue that there were two Parker Hill sound moderators taken into evidence, and each of these was forensically examined. The campaign website outlines that there is a copious amount of evidence to that effect. It's the opinion of the campaign that the existence of two sound moderators caused some confusion, with it raising further questions over the validity of the sound moderator evidence. Then there are the phone calls, another significant part of the submission. Namely, the suggestion that the police received two phone calls on the morning of the murders, one from Jeremy and one from his father, Neville. This is based on the existence of two call logs, both of which have different times and wording. The third is the integrity of the crime scene, a wider issue that all goes back to the police's handling of the case and goes hand in hand with point number four, which relates to the windows at the farm. Developing this further slightly, it relates to the suggested entry and exit points that Jeremy Bamba might have used. The fifth issue relates to that of Sheila's body and the suggestion from the campaign team that Sheila was still alive during the standoff and past the point when the raid team entered the building. For those who followed the case, this won't be much of a surprise. There are several separate reasons for this theory and there will be a very lengthy episode on this subject because there is a lot to say. But the assumption that Sheila was alive is based on various factors from witness statements to crime scene images and other information. The sixth is the issue of photographic evidence, specifically that certain crime scene images have allegedly still not been disclosed. The penultimate point is that of the specific complaints about two police officers, with it being alleged that certain officers deliberately lied and distributed evidence to the detriment of Jeremy's case. The final issue is related to Jeremy's alleged motive, the inheritance, and the allegation that there were others who could have benefited from Jeremy Bamba's conviction. The motive was a huge part of the prosecution's case, and there's no doubt about the fact that the jury were misled on this point. Having asked the judge to clarify who gained if Jeremy was convicted, they were advised that no one did, and that's not strictly true. Relevant? I'm not sure but certainly not entirely accurate. These are the eight grounds upon which Jeremy's hopes now rest. And according to a statement he released at the time of the submission, there is a renewed sense of hope over what he believes is a concrete appeal. At the moment, that is all we have, with the most recent update coming from a vague article published under the headline, White House Farm Merger Jeremy Bamber Seeks to Overturn Conviction with New Evidence, Lawyers Say... The article suggests that the submission is based on dramatic new evidence. The supposed revelations, which were originally published in the Mail on Sunday, alleged that the dossier sent to the CCRC contained 10 new pieces of evidence. Quote, They say the evidence raises questions over a gruesome key detail highlighted by the judge at Bamba's trial. End quote. The suggestion is that the new evidence relates to the three burn marks that were present on the back of Neville's neck. At Bamba's trial in 1986, the prosecution presented that these burn marks were caused by the rifle, but the defence now claims that it was actually the Arga cooker. 
The article quotes that the burn marks were key in securing Bamba's conviction. It's hard for me to really consider this point when I know nothing about that evidence. But at face value, it's hard to understand how it dramatically changes the case. After all, the burns are hardly the smoking gun and the other evidence against Bamba is far more compelling. But I say that without knowing the context. The end result of this submission is yet to be seen, but it is something we will no doubt be discussing in a future episode. <laughs> 